did. I did go through a challenging few moments in the journey where I had to face something that I was really anxious about. And that is this idea of eventually losing my parents one day because I just love them so much. And, uh, and that stresses me out. But um, that challenging part of the trip really focused me to, or forced me to look at that and understand, analyze that anxiety, and then learn the tools that I have within me that make me a strong and resilient person. And really, psilocybin gave me that knowledge that I can face that, even though it will be a difficult time in my life losing my parents, I will be able to get through it. It's going to be hard, but I have the resources within me, the tools within me, and I have a strong support system around me to help me. And I just didn't know that before. And again, psilocybin just taught me that. And so um, I always try to tell, I always tell people that psilocybin will, will teach you what you need to know and it will, it will show you your strength. This is Unconditioning. Discovering the Voice Within, with Whitney and Jenkins. Hello and welcome to the 64th episode of Unconditioning, Discovering the Voice Within, where I bring on guests and we talk about the inner authentic voice and the challenges and the rewards that come from following it. This week, I have with me Jennifer Chesick. She is the author of the Psilocybin Handbook for Women, an award-winning freelance science and medical journalist, editor, and fact-checker. Her work has appeared in several national publications, including the Washington Post. Jen earned her Master of Science and Journalism from Northwestern University, and she currently teaches in the journalism and publishing programs at Belmont University. She also leads various workshops at the literary nonprofit The Porch, and she serves as the managing editor for the literary magazine Shift. I stumbled upon Jen at her book launch for the Psilocybin Handbook for Women at a bookshop in Nashville, and I was so enamored with her delivery and the subject matter of her book that I invited her onto my podcast. Psilocybin and the research of psychedelics are a subject that I'm really passionate about that I haven't really spoken about publicly yet, so this is a chance for me to be able to hold a container for the conversation and the immense potentiality that psychedelics have to enhance and improve and heal our traumas. And Jen is coming at this from an angle specifically for women, which is one that I think is incredibly important as we move forward with this research. I had a lovely time speaking with Jen, and I know that you are going to find her engaging and wise and well without further ado here is Jen Chesick. I'm great thank you so much for inviting me on your podcast I really appreciate it. You're in Nashville now? Are you? Yeah I just moved here so. Oh okay welcome do you like it so far? So far. That's <laughs> it's good. brand new everything's brand new so maybe I'll see you in the neighborhood then. Yes you will. <laughs> it's very much about authenticity following your inner voice and giving you a platform to tell your story. That's pretty much like the purpose of my podcast. And because you're a writer, uh, there is a creative element to you. And I'm sure like there's many facets of yourself that I don't really know about yet as we get sure. more. But one of the first questions that I like to ask my guests is when is the first time that you realized that you had this like inner voice of your own that you were able to recognize as purely you and able to follow in your life? That's such a great question. And I think I recognized it at a very young age that I had an inner voice. I, I feel like I might've been three or four where I, you know, I realized I was sort of talking to myself in my brain and, uh, and I, I actually didn't think anyone else had that. And I felt which is sort of <laughs> silly to think that, but you know, when you're a little kid, you don't know anything. And so I just assumed this, that I was almost like crazy in some way because my, my head talked to me, um, but we, most people have that. I guess there is a condition where some people don't have that inner voice, but by and large, most people do. Uh, but it it made me really nervous at times because I didn't, you know, it wasn't like I heard voices in my head. It was just me having thoughts. And I think at one point I was feeling really anxious as a child. I had a lot of um, childhood illness with asthma. And so I was hospitalized a lot. 
And I was feeling a lot of anxiety about that, but didn't know what that was. And that voice was sort of talking to me a little bit. And the word that came to mind, I must have heard it like on a soap opera that my babysitter was listening to or something, was the word frustrated came to mind in like this four-year-old brain. <laughs> and and then I felt better. Like it was a weird thing. I suddenly was like, oh, I have a way to voice mm. what I'm feeling. And uh, then I was able to like talk to my mom a little bit about my concerns and things like that and uh yeah so that was my first time recognizing that inner voice and then I tried to learn to listen to it a little bit more yeah wow that that's really like sophisticated for a four-year-old so strange bizarre (laughs) like identify an emotion and label it with something that's that's fantastic (laughs) yeah where did that word come from frustrated you know (laughs) so funny yes so asthma when you were a kid kind of like maybe feeling isolated in that situation of like not being able to like go and be a normal kid outside and play yeah yeah so I grew up in North Dakota and obviously it's very cold there in the winter and cold air is a an asthma trigger and so I was definitely not allowed to go out and play when it when there was cold air which was a lot most of the time so I stayed inside for recess and read books and things like that and I did have this feeling as a kid of I just want to be able to breathe at times uh, especially if I were was really sick and you know, there was nothing that could be done. I just had to sort of deal with it. And I think that taught me a lot of about resilience uh, because there was nothing that could be done to make me breathe easier. And there were certain things, but at a certain point, that was it. And so I think I really had to lean into this idea of this too shall pass, which was something that my mother would always say. And so, yeah, I think about that a lot as I go through difficult times. Yeah, and perhaps like embrace like your inner world a little more than than most. I do. Yeah, as a as a kid, I uh, had a lot of stuffed animals, and so when my sister was out playing with all the neighborhood kids and things like that, I was inside with my stuffed animals, and we created this. Uh, I guess universe of my animals essentially where I would use my little uh, Fisher Price recorder microphone and record little stories about what my stuffed animals were up to in their little lives. (laughs) In North Dakota what was it like um, like living in North Dakota for you did you feel like really connected to it or was it like were you dreaming of other places? I think I was always that person in rural America dreaming of the bigger city, like life out there. I I love my history of growing up in North Dakota and I love to go back and visit and I feel very strongly rooted to that upbringing. But uh, I always, you know, I always wanted to get out and see the world in some other way. But at the same time, I feel, like I said, I feel very connected to what what growing up in rural America taught me, and uh, again, going back to resilience with the <laughs> cold weather and uh, and then just lots of other things. I think I had experiences that a lot of other women didn't get, you know, working in the garden or working in the yard where uh, you're, you know, you're kind of doing a lot of different things and, uh, you know, knowing how to change a tire or yeah. uh, even just driving at a very early age. I know a lot of people who've moved from New York to Nashville and they didn't have their driver's license as adults. And that was like mind blowing to me because I feel like I was driving at such a young age. Yeah. So you had like, a, you felt really grounded and connected to, to that life. Yeah. And I still do. Yeah. yeah. Did you feel that way always, or did it take you like a trek outside of North Dakota to like fully appreciate it? Definitely that trek outside to fully appreciate that upbringing and all of the um, independent uh, teachings that, you know, I guess my parents taught me to be very independent. And so to come outside and of that environment and learn that other people weren't necessarily taught that, uh, that was a, a surprise to me. And it really made me appreciate that upbringing. So, so when did writing become outlet or a connection for you? Yeah, really at a young age, I think, again, it started, probably started with that making up stories about my stuffed animals and recording them. Uh, but I, I started reading at a very young age. I think I was four when I learned to read and I can still remember the moment of like it clicking and I loved reading. And so initially I thought, okay, I'm going to be a writer in some capacity. And 
in when I was in fifth grade, I had this amazing teacher. She really encouraged creative writing. I still have the notebook that I did on my fifth grade creative writing in, but she's, I think she's recognized something in me as a, a passion and maybe a talent. I don't know back then, but uh, she really convinced me to pursue journalism. And I'm ever grateful for that because uh, I, I did, I pursued it from the moment she told me that. Uh, eventually became the editor of my high school paper and uh, in college, then did some newspaper work and then also got into broadcasting quite heavily because I admired the TV anchors in my hometown, <laughs> so, the news anchors. <laughs> so you found your voice in, in that life. Absolutely. Yeah, there's something really powerful about not only just creative writing and writing down your thoughts and feelings and perhaps a journal or developing a short story, but I really loved journalism because you you have all these different parts. You interview somebody, you do your own research, and then you have to sort of put it together like pieces of a puzzle. You know you've got all these different pieces. You've got to assemble it in a way that's cohesive and coherent and easy for someone else to read and understand. And I, I think I just thrive on that sort of thing. And I thrive on a deadline, which I think a lot of people think is weird about me. <laughs> if you give me a deadline, I'm in, I'm in crazy typing mode and just focus mode. I don't think that's weird at all. I'm very similar. <laughs> <laughs> so, so writing is what brought you to your next phase in life. Yeah. So I, after, um, so in graduate school, I went to graduate school in Minnesota, but I lived in Fargo, North Dakota. I was right across the border there. So I did that and studied journalism there. And then in, and also creative writing, I did like a dual major. And then I moved to Chicago uh, in, uh, right after that for graduate school in journalism, I pursued uh, a master of science in journalism and just kind of kept focusing on that. After that, I landed a job in writing about boating and fishing, which I love because that was part of my upbringing in North Dakota. Yeah. So that was a great fit. I was the managing editor there. And then right after that, um, I left to go freelance. I left that job to freelance and kind of be my own boss and pursue different areas of writing. And then I, that's when I really got into the health and science and medical journalism and hence writing the book that I wrote. So yeah, <laughs> uh, it's been a wild ride, but so much fun. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, the book that you wrote, there is your beautiful book positioned behind you. Congratulations on Thank that. Thank you. It's fantastic. I went to your talk in Nashville and the energy that you bring is just marvelous. And I really am passionate about this subject too. So Definitely the platform to be able to share your absolutely. So yes, the book is the psilocybin handbook for women. I always forget the rest of the title. It's how magic <laughs> mushrooms, psychedelic therapy, and microdosing can benefit your mental, physical, and spiritual health. And uh, so really this idea of psychedelics was something that I had been I've been interested in it and had been writing about it as a journalist here and there for different news outlets. And uh, I'm also passionate about women's health because it seems like the mainstream medical system often leave, leaves the female body behind. Uh, you know, we're essentially the last people to get the care that we need, which is really frustrating. And uh, so this bridging of psychedelics and women's health seemed like a natural fit for me. And so got the book deal last June and finished the book. Uh, it, it launched just this past June, as you well know, since you attended the launch. Thank you so much. <laughs> and yeah, it's been, it's been great. The research was fan, uh, just absolutely amazing and fascinating. And I can't stop researching uh, the, the idea of psilocybin with women's health. And one of the things that came up in my research that I that I was sort of surprised about is that some women are using some psychedelics more frequently than men are, which was a surprise. But then when I dug a little deeper to think more about that and dug into the research, it turns out that women are returning to psychedelics because again, uh, they're, well, they're using psychedelics to self-treat, whereas men often use psychedelics uh, in a recreational way. And that's not true for everyone, of course, this is just survey results, but uh, I, I was, that didn't surprise me that women are using psychedelics to self-treat. And again, that just really comes from this idea that the mainstream medical system tends to leave us behind. And people tend to ask me about that. Well, what do you mean? 
And uh, it's that early, in early stage clinical trials, women were really largely excluded from those until the 1990s. And uh, I was a teenager then, so this really sort of blows my mind. And I know you were at my launch, I'm telling you some of these same things, but I'm sharing them with your audience. Uh, the thing that when I, when I look at this in the, in the larger context, like what ramifications has that had where women were excluded from early stage clinical trials? It's that if we, if we take this timeline of um, Viagra, this a drug for male sexual dysfunction came out in 1998. And that was, you know, that was FDA approved in 1998. At that point in time, we didn't even have in, in mainstream science, we didn't even have this uh, picture of what the clitoris, the entire structure of the clitor clitoris, because it has internal structure. So we didn't even know what that was until 2005. And then, fast forward, women didn't get a drug for female sexual dysfunction until 2015. So that's 17 years after dudes got a drug for, uh, for sexual dysfunction. And so it does have ramifications. Women are more likely to be gaslighted at the doctor's office. They're also more likely to suffer from chronic pain conditions and uh, a myriad of other things. And so, yeah, when we look at women are using psychedelics to self-treat, I can absolutely see why. Yeah. Were you ex did you have any experience with psychedelics before you decided to and go on this trek of discovery? In, oh, no, I so I hadn't. I was always really fearful of, of taking any, um, I guess I'm going to use air quotes here, illicit substances, because um, uh, I use the air quotes because I don't believe that they should be illicit substances. So I was always nervous about uh, trying cannabis or trying anything else. But growing up, a lot of my friends were very into psychedelics and they were into weed and I just didn't touch it. And the reason for that was because, you know, was really nervous that something would go wrong and that that wasn't a safe environment necessarily for me to be in because would somebody uh, help me out if something went wrong, you know, or because, you know, these drugs were illicit at the time. And, you know, would someone be too worried that they would get in trouble if, um, you know, if they helped me after an experience. And so I always stayed away from it. I tried, um, I finally got into cannabis in my 20s when uh, I was dealing with a lot of pain from a condition called endometriosis, which one in 10 women or people assigned female at birth uh, have. Occasionally men can get it, but that's a lot rarer. So, um, so I was having a lot of pain back in my 20s and someone suggested, well, cannabis may help with your pain. And so I tried that and um, I did find some relief, but uh, at the time I really didn't know a lot about the you know right ways to use it and things like that. And I, I took a hit off of a, um, a bowl, like the a small pipe and uh, I ended up it taking such a big hit and it burnt my lungs a little bit. And so I used my inhaler and that uh, opened my alveoli even more. Like I have no idea that that would happen. And, uh, and then I got extremely hot. <laughs> like I was high beyond belief. I remember sort of, I felt like I was melting into my chair and then um, I fell on the floor and I actually was uh, having like myoclonic jerking, which is involuntary jerking. It looked like I was having a seizure, but it wasn't a seizure. And again, you know, I don't want to scare people away from cannabis because it's largely safe. But if you don't know what you're doing with it, you can certainly have a bad reaction. And so I did. And so I swore it off for a long time, but then was dealing with a lot of more endometriosis stuff later on and more asthma stuff later on and more, uh, you know, migraines and things like that. And so um, I tried gummies, you know, once there were dispensaries around that you could go to, I know we don't have, um, you know, actual Delta 9 THC in Tennessee, but my, my husband will go to um, Illinois to get it for me and uh, gasp, don't send the law after us. <laughs> but um, yeah, then I tried that and it was, I found so much relief with it. And so to get back to your question about psychedelics, when did I first try? Uh, I was nervous about trying that too. And again, I think it's because we have all this secrecy around these, these medications or these plant medicines. And uh, there's a lot of stigma associated with it, or there used to be, we're starting to move away from that, but it's still there. And there's still, again, this hush-hush uh, idea about it. And even as we're, as laws are changing fairly rapidly, but um, eventually, I, you know, when I got the book deal, I was like, well, I have got to do a psilocybin journey and I need to stop being afraid. And I'm really glad that I did because it was absolutely life-changing. 
uh, and almost hard to put into words. But of course, I wrote my my first chapter about that experience. And I did that because I wanted other people to have, I wanted there to be less secrecy around what happens during a trip or what goes on in your brain. What are some examples of that to help people feel a little safer getting into this space? Yeah, oh, absolutely. And thank you for doing that and sharing and being vulnerable about your experience. Because I feel like there are a lot of people who are probably in a similar situation who are like really interested in something. And then it takes someone like you who resonate with the, and aligns with them to be able to dip their toe in. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, I think I really wanted to present this idea that I am not someone who takes taking any substance lightly. I will rigorously research it and think about it before I do it. I mean, and there's lots of people out there who are fearless about these sorts of things. And, and, you know, you're out of, they're at a party and they're like, you know, somebody offers them MDMA and they're like, sure, give it to me. You know, and I'm just not like that. And so, and I think there are a lot of other people out there that um, do have those reservations as I do. And so again, just trying to help people feel a little bit uh, more at ease. To be more intentional about everything. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. That too. (laughs) And also like you seem to have like a very vibrant, creative internal life too, from since when you were a child. So how did that affect you as far as like that inner world? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I I imagine that like having the interior world that I do and having the creative, the creative lifestyle that I do, I am certain that that informed my psychedelic journey a little bit. Um, But and then vice versa, uh, the psychedelic journey, uh, there's this thing after your journey, you should do some integration, which is really sort of reflecting on what you learned during your experience and um and then figuring out how to put that in how to put behavior change into your your ongoing life and your practice and so i think that you know that that creativity and knowing that i can just journal and write and free write and i've done that you know forever that was really beneficial for integration was just kind of describing the things I saw, what did it mean in my life, how, how to reflect on those things, and then how to put, again, put that into practice in my everyday life in terms of the things I wanted to change about, about how I was, you know, so I think that was really beneficial having that creative mind. Putting all the the puzzle pieces together, like you, as far as like women specifically, what are like some of the top things that you could say that are most beneficial for women in particular? I, there, there's so much potential here. It's hard to uh, put it into words in, in just a few things. But I think one thing that is really important for women is just feeling safe and feeling confident and feeling, I mean, I think body image is a big thing for women. So all of these things, have, there's potential with psilocybin for all of those things. Uh, body image, um, psilocybin is being studied for uh, eating disorders. So anorexia nervosa specifically, although there are, you know, 11 or 12 different types of eating disorders. That's the one that, that they're fo- the researchers are focusing on right now. And we're seeing some promising results with some of those, with that, with that clinical trial that's going on right now to, to help with body image and heal eating disorders. You know, that's not a guarantee. We still need to do more research, but, you know, I've already heard reports from women about, you know, how they use psilocybin to end um, eating disordered be- or disordered eating behaviors. And that seems really promising. Uh, I also see potential for psilocybin to help regulate the menstrual cycle if it's become irregular. So uh, Johns Hopkins University, they have some female scientists who are doing a great work uh, on just studying the menstrual cycle with psychedelics. And they did some case studies where they interviewed some women who did use psilocybin. And uh, they determined that their cycles became regular after a period of irregularity and that their cycles came early. And, you know, that that didn't seem like a negative thing that the cycle came early. It was possibly part of that regulation happening. And one of the women had premenstrual dysphoric disorder, so PMDD, and then the other one had polycystic ovarian syndrome, so PCOS. And so, again, those those 
disorders can cause irregularity and it seemed like they returned to regularity after at least for a time so that after doing their psilocybin journeys so that was that seems promising and i did talk to an indigenous wisdom expert she does womb care and um she recommended that if people are considering doing a journey for um, their cycles that the best place to do that journey is during ovulation rather than closer to your menstrual cycle and for that the reason for that was that a lot of times when we're preparing for a psilocybin journey, there might be a little bit of fasting going on. It might just be that you fast that day leading into your journey, or you might fast the day before leading up to it. And so uh, as we get closer to our periods that we, we just don't have a lot of energy in our bodies to do that. So it makes it more difficult. During the um, uh, ovulation period, we also, we have more energy in our bodies to manage fasting, but also a psilocybin journey can vary, um, can, can take a lot of energy out of you simply because of all the emotional stuff that might come up and just the experience itself. And so um, that energy at ovulation point is much better than again, towards the menstrual cycle, I mean, towards the, the your period. And with microdosing, a lot of people are trying out microdosing right now with psilocybin. And if people are planning to do that, she recommended uh, at least giving whatever protocol you choose, I do mention some some of the ma the main protocols in my book, whichever protocol you choose, continue to do that for three months and um, journal while you're doing that or keeping a diary of your symptoms or, or changes in symptoms to see how that affects you before switching to a different protocol or giving up or whatever, I mean, just because it takes some time for things to occur when you're microdosing. So that's that was her recommendation there. I also see potential for psilocybin in parenting. So I have a whole chapter on parenting. And in one, in, in part of that, I talk about whether, whether you can use psilocybin while pregnant and whether you can use it while breastfeeding. And I provide, provide strategies for that. And, um, you know, with interviews from the experts, of course. And then uh, in terms of parenting in general, um, there's this thing called, we all, uh, many of us have what are called adverse childhood experiences or, or what are called ACEs for short. And so ACEs are things like um, if you had severe childhood illness, that's a trauma that you endured in childhood. Or if your parents got divorced or you had an incarcerated parent or you were dealing with systemic racism in your community, things like that can all adversely affect um, your stress response as a child and that has ramifications in adulthood. So actually one in six people have had four or more ACEs from childhood. And, uh, and then if you are um, an adult who's had four or more ACEs, your children are more likely to have four or more ACEs. And ACEs for children when they, when they become adults can have um, impacts on metabolic health. So like blood sugar management, uh, things like that. And so I see a lot of potential for us to use psychedelics, um, psilocybin specifically, but also MDMA uh, to heal or to work on some of those ACEs, maybe heal them, just work on our trauma so that we aren't perpetuating cycles of trauma down through generations. So again, that's an area where I see a lot of women potentially turning to psychedelics to work on their traumas so that they can be, um, you know, better, better parents. And again, not uh, perpetuate cycles of trauma. Trauma is never someone's right. fault. It's just, we've got to work on them to heal them. Yeah. And, and so I feel like uh, psychedelics also enhance a lot of the energetic essence about ourselves. And so like the energy from those traumas also gets stuck within us. I can understand like how that would be a, a great assistance in, in addressing those things. Yes, absolutely. When we when we do have a trauma, it does affect our stress response and that we can become very hypervigilant in our lives where everything, even if it's not a threat, feels like a threat. And, you know, again, that has ramifications for metabolic health and just how we how we exist in this world and it can make existing in the world very difficult. Yeah, absolutely. So you and your journey, um, I, if I recall correctly, you had a journey that was, you had a guide from someone who's very experienced in this, like indigenously. Yes. And so I wonder, like, do you have any thoughts about your experience with that? And that being like your first experience with psychedelics versus more of like a clinical setting? 
like like in a study? Yeah, so I don't have the experience of having gone through a clinical trial where, um, you know, you're in, essentially those typically work where you're in a room, you probably have an eye mask over your head and you've got clinicians around you sort of guiding you through. But with my guide, um, I did an experience, I did two experiences in a row where one one night and then one the next day. And the first experience was lying down on a mat with an eye mask over me um, and the uh, my practitioners were playing Tibetan singing bowls. So it was just beautiful sound bath and a lot of good, um, it was just a really good atmosphere to be in a good setting. And that kind of led me into a really nice journey. And then the next day I did a deeper journey with a little bit more um, psilocybin, a deeper dose. And uh, that was, I was sitting outside for the most part in the woods in nature. I was in a very safe environment with my practitioners and everything. The cabin was right there, but uh, being outside in nature felt better to me. I mean, I liked both experiences, but I think I preferred that, that feeling of being outside. There was a light mist happening. And I remember just a few raindrops coming down and hitting my face and thinking about how beautiful that was or looking at the trees and, and thinking there's such a green green. And I was kind of <laughs> laughing at myself, like, oh, girl takes mushrooms and thinks trees are pretty, you know, <laughs> like, okay, this is so cliche. But um, then my experience became something much deeper and it was incredibly profound. And so I don't necessarily think there's one way that's better than another. I could just only share my own opinion on what worked best for me. And that was definitely being outside felt much more intuitive than um, being on the mat, but both experiences were valuable. Uh, but in terms of doing something clinically, um, yeah, you, you won't be in nature probably, you're most likely to be in a room, but it does seem like when people are, when researchers are putting on psychedelic studies, they try to make that room and environment very appealing, almost more like a yoga, yoga space rather than um, rather than being in a doctor's office. So they do create some elements of what's called set and setting. And set is really how do you, what's your mindset going into a journey? Uh, what are your intentions, things like that. And then setting is of course the actual environment and who's around you during a session. And I think, I do think researchers are putting that effort of set and setting into psychedelic journeys because they know that that's important container uh and feeling safe within that experience is incredible yes. did you have like a deep connection with your spirituality in your own life before this experience of your psychedelic psilocybin journey yeah I mean I think I'm very spiritual when it comes to nature you know that's where I feel there's this higher power you know uh, for lack of a better word is uh, that's when I have my most spiritual moments. I could be out running in the woods and just, you know, talking to talking to someone in my mind that is is deceased, someone that I love, uh, something like that. And that feels very profound to me uh, in terms of spirituality. And so that, you know, diving into psychedelics, again, I think that ties back to why I personally prefer to be in nature is because that's where I tend to have my most spiritual experiences. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> Back to your North Dakota roots of like- Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> yes, so you are back in Nashville after like being on the book tours and uh, attending the conference, the psychedelic conference that you attended. There seems to be like an incredible community that is emerging that you are now a part of. Can you like share a bit about that and how you feel to be within that? Yeah, it is an incredible community. I feel like people in the space are super supportive of my work and, you know, I'm supportive of them right back. And it's been really fun to connect with people. There's certainly an element to this idea of someone who's done a psychedelic journey, having a very mystical experience, finding something else out about themselves and um, changing patterns that they want to change. There's this element of people being sort of enlightened, you know, and uh, that's really nice to connect with people who, again, are really working on themselves in the psychedelic space because, um, you know, they're just very open-minded, very friendly, very supportive, it seems like. Now there are elements of the psychedelic, uh, you know, there's this renaissance going on now. And again, I, I do air quotes because, uh, you know, psychedelics have been used for, uh, you know, hundreds of years by indigenous people. And then, you know, Western science got a hold of it in the 
you know, mid uh, 50 or, you know, middle of the last century, I'll just say. <laughs> and, um, and then of course the war on drugs kind of shut down all that research. And now we have this resurgence of research um, again, which is great. But uh, I do want to point out that the, it's not all roses and unicorns and rainbows in that space. There are certainly issues with psychedelics that we need to think about as um, a community at large. And obviously the industry really needs to think about. And that's that uh, some people, some practitioners out there have abused people on psychedelics. And that's the same with any substance, you know, it happens. People obviously get assaulted with when, with al when alcohol is involved, that can happen. Like not putting the onus on anyone who's gone through sexual assault about consent, I'm putting that onus on people who are perpetrators, you know, but that is an issue. And I think I really want to raise awareness about this idea that when you are on a psychedelic, you are very vulnerable, you're in a very vulnerable space, plus your mind is so expanded and open and flexible, that you're more susceptible to being convinced to do something that you aren't want that you don't want to do. So again, touch things like that. So I've been trying to raise awareness about this idea that when we are about to do a psychedelic journey, if you're working with a practitioner, whether that's an underground guide or a psychedelic assisted therapist, anything like that, or you're going to a retreat, make sure you talk to the that the well the people again should be talking to you the onus is on them uh to have a conversation about consent so um, for example if you are in a psychedelic assisted therapy session or working with a guide they may say hey is it okay for me to like hold your hand if we're in the middle of a session and you i can tell you're experiencing something deep is that okay with you those conversations should be had before you're on the substance and, um, you know, guidelines sort of created about your own levels of consent that you're providing regarding touch. But in that session, it, then if you are on a psychedelic, you, sh you can still say no, you know, to anything that you don't want. And if, if you've already said no to something outside of um, the psychedelic session and someone tries to then hold your hand after you've already said no to that when you were, you know, in a normal state of consciousness, um, you know, that is a violation of, of consent if they're trying to pressure you, but also you can't suddenly say yes, you know, they should never say, think that because you're suddenly saying yes under the psychedelic that it's okay if you've already said no outside of the psychedelic, if that makes sense. And um, so at that conference, going back to that conference, um, you know, there were uh, maybe 11,000, I think is the number that was thrown out about people that attended this conference. And so, uh, you know, I'm sure there were issues going on and I had a, a negative experience there and I want to share that if that's okay. Um, so I had a journalist who was writing a story about me, um, about my book and interviewing me. And um, we were both there at this conference. Um, I was there obviously promoting my book, but I was also there as a journalist writing about the conference and so some of the things that were um, the new research and things like that. And so I kept bumping into this journalist even after he had interviewed me and we, we hung out a bit and we were at one of the events and um, it was a concert and uh, he had taken some acid, but I didn't feel comfortable in that environment to, to take anything. I did have a little bit of a cannabis gummy, but a very mild amount. And he did grab my hand and this was totally inappropriate of him to do that because you know, we had had a professional relationship, not only as, as co-journalists, but he was interviewing me as a subject for his story. So he was in a position of power, yet he still felt like it was fine to grab my hand. I recognized that the psychedelic had made him feel very connected in a way that wasn't reality. And, uh, but he still, he, he basically violated a level of consent with me because he didn't ask. And I was, certainly would have said no in that, in that space. What, what ended up happening was um, there was suddenly a pause in the song. I mean, I froze for a second, but then there was a pause um, for applause at the end of a song. I, you know, grabbed my hand away and I excused myself to the restroom and then I left the event. Um, but it really angered me because that guy felt safe enough to do a psychedelic in that space. I certainly didn't feel safe enough because I thought something like that could happen. And then it did happen anyways. And I am, I'm the one that ended up leaving, you know, and that really enraged me and I'm still angry about it, clearly. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like you, you're very like aware of your boundaries too. So, that, so like that's incredibly important to know your boundaries in those situations as well. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you.
give yourself permission to have those like in a setting like that where people are so vulnerable in, in a subject that is becoming kind of like trendy so I'm sure like a lot of people are are sort of trying to like get in to that scene for maybe yeah. not most pure intentions absolutely right exactly so yeah I, I think I just wanted to raise awareness about that and if people want to learn more about what is happening in the space regarding uh sexual assault or just assault in general um you that is you can look at this there or listen to this podcast it's called cover story power trip it was put out by new york magazine and specifically one of the hosts her name is dr lily k ross she's amazing she's reported on this extensively and has shares her own experience as well and i think it's just something that uh, I hope a lot of people listen to because again it does raise awareness about this issue and that's not to say that I don't want the psychedelic movement to move forward I absolutely do it will have tons of benefits for people but as we move forward I definitely want people to be aware of these issues and um, do what they can to protect themselves and feel safe again consent is not something that is on the that is the responsibility of the that of the client or the patient, but the practitioners, but if we're all more aware of it, that can help. Yeah, thank you for bringing awareness to that. I think that's really important. Thank you for letting me share. <laughs> what is next for you as far as your writing or do you have another book in the works? <laughs> People keep asking me that and I'm like, calm down. I just wrote this book. <laughs> My father-in-law loves to ask me that. What's your next book? <laughs> Wait a minute, buddy. Hold your horses. But um, I, you know, I'm thrilled that people are asking me that. And I do plan to write something again in the future. Um, but right now I'm really focused on the promotional aspect of the book. So attending book festivals and doing readings at book and talks at bookstores and talks at other um, venues. So for example, I just had a talk at Psychedelic Assembly in New York. Psychedelic Assembly is, they have a, um, a brick and mortar space, but it's a, it's a space to create community around psychedelics. And so that was a really fun event. But uh, yeah, so right now I'm really hyper-focused on the um, promotional aspect of it, but continuing to write about psychedelics in the journalism space. So writing for different publications about psychedelics. And then I, I would think by sometime next year, I'll have a book uh, book proposal written and sent to my publisher <laughs> and we'll go from there uh, in terms of what I do next. But it will definitely be health in the health space, probably focused on women and that sort of thing. Yeah, I love that. You're on a mission. That you're I'm on a mission. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe if they give you a deadline, then you'll be able to like. You know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> very I am very driven by a deadline yeah the, I got the book deal last June and then um it was it was a whirlwind I really only had five months to write it and get it out there not, I shouldn't say get it out there but get it to my publisher and so I was at the time I had already agreed to teach three classes at Belmont I teach in their journalism and publishing programs and so I already agreed to do, do that as an adjunct and then uh, you know, I had a lot of freelance writing already lined up for the fall. And so I was just like hammering away and I never took a day off, which is, I do not recommend not taking a day off, but um, you know, that's, that's bad behavior on my part, but I just felt like I had to do that to get the book done. And I, I made my deadline and uh, you know, I, I had to have a slight extension for um, getting one last, one or two last interviews in of people that weren't available until after my original deadline. But uh, but yeah, if you give me a deadline, I'm I'm on it. I'm focused. <laughs> I'm I'm like, don't talk to me, husband. Go away and don't do this. And I'm focused on my laptop, and that's it. How have you been handling the response and integrating that into your life? Oh, it's been it's been such a wonderful, wild time. Um, and you know, I'm I'm so appreciative of the how people are responding to it, and they're tagging me in, on Instagram with the book and with their selfies of the book and things like that. And I'm so, I have so much gratitude for all of that. Such a good reception. A lot of wonderful women, such as yourself, are helping to promote it by having me as a guest on their podcast and things like that. So um, that's all been so great. I think I had a lot of. Um, 
nervousness or anxiety about putting this out in the world uh, just because I didn't know how people would receive it. Would I end up getting um, threatening DMs in my Instagram, which, which you know, has happened before in journalism contexts in terms of things I've written, where I've got some angry person, usually a dude, on some tirade against me. And so I was really sort of worried about that, but nothing like that has, has transpired it's all been good but in that period leading up to the, the actual launch again had a lot of anxiety and but what was funny is I got the box of my publisher sent me a box of books at, right after they printed but before they were available to other people and I didn't know that those were coming I should have known that happens to every author but they came and I just I just thought it was like a package of something that I ordered you know you order you shop online you order things you need for the house and then they arrive and you know, but you forgot that you ordered them in the first place <laughs> and so I thought oh what is this it's probably you know laundry detergent or something and open it up and it was my book and I was like no put it back in I'm not ready I'm not ready for it to be out in the world <laughs> it's like seeing a spider in there or something <laughs> but but again it has it's been really really wonderful yeah. well thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your vulnerability and being brave enough uh, because as you were anxious to write the book and have it be published I'm sure there was a lot of anxiousness like leading up to like actually doing a journey too so mm -hmm. um, like integrating full circle everything that you've been doing Thank you. Um, yeah, I did have a lot of nerves going into the journey, but I tried to tamp that down. I did talk to several people whom I knew that had already tried psychedelics and asked them about their journeys. And I think that helps to um, quell that anxiety because the less anxiety that you have going into it, um, the better, likely the better off you are in terms of having a good experience. And I really did. I did go through a challenging few moments in the journey where I had to face something that I was really anxious about. And that is this idea of eventually losing my parents one day because I just love them so much. And, uh, and that stresses me out. But um, that challenging part of the trip really focused me to, or forced me to look at that and understand, analyze that anxiety and then learn the tools that I have within me that make me a strong and resilient person. And really psilocybin gave me that knowledge that I can face that, even though it will be a difficult time in my life, losing my parents, I will be able to get through it. It's going to be hard, but I have the resources within me, the tools within me, and I have a strong support system around me to help me. And I just didn't know that before. And again, psilocybin just taught me that. And so um, I always try to tell, I always tell people that psilocybin will, will teach you what you need to know and it will it will show you your strengths so that's always um, something that I can think can help put people at ease that's a brilliant way of putting that actually yeah. thank you <laughs> so I have one last question that I asked my guests to kind of like wrap everything up and since you're promoting your book this will probably be pretty easy for you if your inner voice had a billboard what would it say to the world Oh, oh, okay. That's a good one. My inner voice had a billboard. Hmm. Hmm. Can I have that for real? No, <laughs> um, but no, I think so. Something that really resonated with me, and these are not my words, they're from my guide. So before I did the journey, he sent me this audio meditation thing to just try to help get into that space of, Hey, you're about to do a journey. And um, in that meditation, there was sort of this mantra that has really stuck with me. And when I've shared it with other people, it really resonates with them. So my guide, his name is Gabriel Castillo, and he operates Finely Detached. I highly recommend him. And I trust him with other people, and including women. He did bring his mom on the journey to make me feel very safe. Um, so that was brilliant. And But his the words that he shared that were so profound in this meditation, it was the, the pain or I'm sorry, the love, I said that's wrong. The love that you withhold is the pain that you carry. So again, the love that you withhold is the pain that you carry. And that just felt so profound to me because it's very true. When we're feeling fearful in a relationship or um, you know, whether that's a romantic relationship or a relationship with a family member, whatever it may be, or just in life, uh, that, that, uh, when we, when we fail to fully share our love or lean into that love, 
then it has to do with the pain that we've experienced in our past. But we can transcend that. And I feel like psilocybin really helped me do that and really lean into my support system, lean into the love that I have for other people and um, try to share that love a lot more than I, than I have been. So. I love that one. I'm going to write that down and like put it on my wall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's so profound. The other thing that um, he told me, I was dealing with a lot of uh, issues surrounding grief. So my, um, my dog had recently died right before I did my journey. I mean, it was a, it was a year before, but it was still weighing heavily on my heart. And I had had two close friends who had passed away, one from a uh, heroin overdose and one from, and really it was a fentanyl overdose. And then one from just natural causes, he collapsed on a street in New Orleans. And these were really important people in my life. And so I was carrying a lot of grief around that. I still am. But what he had said to me also was really profound. This guy is so profound and he's only like 30 years old. But um, what he said was that um, once once people or an animal, once they pass away, uh, we're no longer separate from them. They become part of you. That, that's when they become part of you. And that was so brilliant too, because it's so true that, um, you know, I, I can lean on the friends who also knew these other friends who had passed away and we carry that person with us. And so when I'm with um, my friends who also knew these friends, then I feel connected with the people I've lost. And we didn't really lose them. They're there, you know. So that felt really profound too. Yeah. So good. <laughs> Thank you. Again, not my words. They were his. But he's a good guy. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. So if people would like to buy your book, because um, I really recommend that they do, <laughs> guide them too. Yeah, absolutely. So the book is available anywhere books are sold. Again, it's called the Psilocybin Handbook for Women. And uh, I always encourage people to buy from their local independent bookstore if they can. And um, my favorite in Nashville is um, the uh, uh, Bookshop Nashville, or just called The Bookshop. It's in East Nashville. And I mean, there are other independent bookstores in Nashville, which are fabulous. I just have a strong connection to um, The Bookshop. So I always recommend if you're local to buy from there. But again, it's available anywhere books are sold and you do you. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm going to put all those links into the show notes so people can click them really easily and accessibly thank and you. as soon as possible. I would love for people to connect with me on social media. I am um, on all the channels. I am at Jen Chesek, so J-E-N-C-H-E-S-A-K. Excellent. Well, thank you again so much for your time and for sharing your story. Thank you. Thanks for having me and uh, you know encouraging me to talk about these things. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining me this week. If you're listening and you like what you hear, please consider subscribing and rating this podcast as it really helps get this podcast out to other people who might be interested in hearing it but don't know about it yet. And also, if you'd like to contact me or reach me, you can reach me at unconditioningpodcast at gmail.com or unconditioningpodcast on Instagram. Thank you so much. And until next time... Stay tuned in to you.